With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about the cost of living, big tech versus Andrew Tate, the madness of Emily Maitlis, and we'll be asking who exactly is Alexander Dugin. So this is the week we've all been dreading. The energy price cap is due to be raised tomorrow from when we're recording this, but we're expecting bills to go up by something like 80% on last year, possibly three and a half thousand pounds a year, something like that. Potentially next year, they could rise to four and a half thousand pounds. Some predictions saying even 6,000 pounds later on in the year. Inflation is around 10%. We're expecting inflation to reach 18% early next year. I mean, Tom, this is a serious, serious crisis now. It is. It feels like, you know, we're recording this the day before the announcement, and it does feel a bit like the calm before the storm. Mm. I don't think many people in politics have fully grappled with the scale of what's coming down the track. Um, It's going to not only be a huge blow to people's living standards, you know, there's estimates it's going to push like half of households into fuel poverty. I mean, this Mm. stuff is completely unprecedented. Um, And yet there's not necessarily kind of full appreciation of how severe that's going to be and also how long it's going to go on for. I mean, there was always this kind of assumption this was kind of transitory. I mean, we were told the inflation originally was transitory and that has obviously not turned out to be the case. There was this hope that in terms of the spikes in energy costs, that again, this would be something that would come and go be alleviated either because of what goes on in Ukraine or because more would kind of come on stream. But it's looking like inflation is going to is going to get very high and stay very high, as will the energy prices. And what's I think so alarming about all of that? It's just no sense of anyone really being in control of the situation. Yeah, it certainly feels like that for millions of households. But even for people who are vying to be the next prime minister, it's something that I think is going to be really important to get over that sense of kind of helplessness. If anything is going to be done, because something really desperately does need to be done at this point. And Ella, I mean, this is kind of often talked about as a natural disaster almost, you know, there's nothing we could have done to stop this. And obviously, you know, the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion is a big factor in this. But I mean, isn't it also the case that our own establishment, our own politicians have done a lot to really, you know, wear down our potential resilience to a crisis like this? Yeah, well, it's it's well known, or at least it should be well known that the energy crisis has been long in the making Mm. because... You're right to say it's like an, uh, some kind of natural disaster because the way in which so many people are talking about energy as if it's it's as if it's a kind of <laughs> a natural resource that just sort of like falls from the sky like yeah. rain. We've lost the sense that it's something that has to be created. There's something mm. that has to have infrastructure, that has to have policy that's geared not just for the next two to five years, but 20 to 50 years. Yeah. And it, it's, it should be central to like um, the provision of housing, like the growing of food, um, like travel, it's uh, or, or the NHS or any of these things. It's something which has to be central to any kind of nation's planning yeah. and, or, and nation's vision for how it's going to look after its citizens. And 
we've lost all that sense. And Tom is right in terms of the fact that this feels like no one's in control because it seems like the the weekly announcements of either something in relation to inflation, something in relation to the price cap is is only serving to give Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, who are the two people who are going to have some kind of shot of doing something about this come September, it just gives them a kind of a means to say something on television. No one is actually implementing any policy or no one is actually making any decisions. That might sound like a small point, but it's kind of insane that we are sort of just sat like we're in a cinema watching this mm. thing play out mm. and and no one is acting. It's funny because in a, in a kind of context in which we talk about crises so much, yeah. We are actually not, no one is doing anything about this crisis and no one's put the the kind of, you know, the, the sort of the only options on the table are Keir Starmer talking about another windfall tax or something like that. More price, you know, yeah. fixing the price cap, but all of these, you which, know. Which, you know, maybe you could entertain or, or but, and, you know, then the in, in kind of interminable discussion about tax goes on between yeah. Trust and Sunak. Which won't touch the size either. No. I mean, like exactly. What both of them have proposed, at least at this point, looks like it'd be like a couple of hundred pounds or something yeah. in terms of relief. What's also so striking about it is how the elite's fingerprints are kind of all over mm. this particular crisis. Insofar as obviously there's been this huge external shock, um, which many people didn't see coming, even though, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> should have been more <laughs> obvious. Um, but it's also the fact that what, as you were saying, has left us so exposed is like all of these series of mistakes or deferred decisions or muddling through, which has taken yeah. place for so long, to, for such a long time. There's so many like elite orthodoxies, which are just crashing together mm. to have left us particularly exposed to this particular crisis. Energy, the fact that, you know, for quite a long time now, we've basically, um, completely downgraded the idea that you could your focus where it comes to energy should be that it's cheap and reliable and secure yeah um the fact that for since the financial crisis we've been printing so much money just to kind mm. of muddle through and particularly since the pandemic of course the scale of that has been unprecedented and also of course lockdown yeah you know the thing that all, everyone agreed on allegedly <laughs> although we're now <laughs> starting to hear from rishi sunak that maybe he was a lone voice of dissent and it's all just coming home to roost. And that's one of the things that I think makes um, it difficult for the political class to actually grasp this and take it seriously is because whether you're talking about all of those orthodoxies or at least some of them, mm. they they are quite attached to them. And you see things like saying, well, even if you freeze the energy price, then that's not good because it will disincentivize people from using less energy, not just for this winter, which is probably going to have to happen, yeah. but in general, because we need to get to net zero. So even now, they can't break out of this way of thinking. It's yeah. crazy. Or, 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 or it's build more wind farms, build more solar panels. Why aren't we insulating houses? There's There doesn't seem to be a recognition, even something like fracking, like we've got tons of gas mm. under our feet. We don't want to do it for environmental reasons or whatever. Well someone else has got to extract that gas mm. and we've got to pay through the nose for it. No one seems to have remembered the one positive thing, the only positive thing about the pandemic was that there was, particularly around the vaccines and things like that, there was this kind of spirit within politics that if you have a real crisis, you can get the wheels turning quick enough and you yeah. can find the solution. And I'm not trying to compare the infrastructure needed for fracking with the infrastructure needed to for a vaccine rollout. But all that sense of kind of urgency and actually the kind of excitement around new technology. Also, whatever it lost. takes, you know, they were prepared to yeah. take some very drastic me measures in response and to take COVID. Some, some of risks. them were mistakes. But there, none of that is happening in relation to this this particular crisis. But it's also the case that you you know you still have this sort of as Tom says you still have this narrative. I've seen so many political commentators, in particular, not just the George Monbiots, but it's kind of softer versions, who have said 
I know things are bad right now, but we shouldn't let this current moment mm. affect our long-term plans mm. for net zero or things like that. And you've got, you know, there's this kind of ridiculous blindness from people who use that kind of that narrative about what it's like to live in Britain. I mean, every year there is a discussion about old people dying of the cold every year. Heating and there's, eating, yeah, making that choice. Ev- we forget, we have these like droughts in the summer and we freak out about global warming, all that kind of stuff. And everyone forgets that it gets really cold in the UK in winter and certainly in some places. And that we already know that housing stock is, you know, uh, for lots of parts of the country kind of poor at best. People have to have the heating on in order to not, you know, free, genuinely in some cases, freeze to death. And there has been that, you know, still the kind of discussion coming out from some central green campaigners and politicians is put on a jumper. Yeah, and it's yeah. just the in kind of the inhumanity of it, actually, yeah. the nastiness of it. And, mm. you know, in the world in which so many people talk about how like nice they want to be to the poor and how much they care about food banks, this is such a blind spot. Yeah. And it's the crocodile tears that wind you up the most, you know, whether it's George Monbiot or anyone else. You know, I saw a lot of people on the left kind of reacting very viscerally to that um, quote from Macron earlier this week saying the age of abundance is over. Quite rightly saying, where was this age of abundance for many people and all the rest of it? (laughs) I don't remember it. Exactly. But at the same time, these are the people, I mean, this this is George Monbiot, you know, ours is a politics of austerity, not abundance. I think I'm right in saying this is a person who wrote an article before the um, post, you know, the 2008 recession, bring on the recession. Yeah, because we're all have, we've all got enough money anyway. Exactly, everything's great and yeah. all the rest of it. So that really downbeat, anti-human, um, eco-austerity, if we can't shake that now, then we've got no chance. I think the problem is it's not just the George Monbiot's of this world um, who are still espousing that. The problem is it's also so many sections of our elite, yeah. even so many sections of the Tory party. And if it's not this crisis that gets us over that, as well as all these other failed orthodoxies, I don't know what will, but we've just got to put that, whatever happens, it's going to be a rough few months, a rough few years, but it's got to be the short-termism, the eco-orthodoxy, the sense in which so many economic decisions should be taken out of people's hands and squirreled away with these intellectual giants in the Bank of England who have served us so well in recent years. All of that's got to, got to stop mm. because um, this cr- crisis is going to be bad enough for people. But what's at the very least, you hope that people are going to learn from it as well. So Andrew Tate, the most talked about man on the internet has now essentially been unpersoned from the internet, banned from YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. He was banned from Twitter a long time ago. Ella, um, what do you make? First of all, what do you make of Andrew Tate? Nice young man, eligible bachelor. I keep thinking poor old Julian Blanc. Do you remember Julian Blanc? <laughs> he was the last hate figure. Yeah, well, kind he, of he's kind of like the original, yeah. superseded by Andrew Tate. I mean, these... Was he banned from the UK, Julian? He, he was, was, so yeah, he still yeah. has like that he was badge sort of, of honour. Like uh, visiting fascists or something. It's <laughs> yeah. quite funny. <laughs> I mean, you know, the th- it, you have to laugh, otherwise you'd cry, because yeah. the things that Andrew Tate comes out with is utterly ridiculous. I mean, it's the most extreme kind of woman hatred, um, you know, talk, you know, parodies of the kind of stuff that you might see on Family Guy or something, you know, it's like that women, you know, only exist as empty vessels to learn how to make coffee and stuff. It's Mm. like, no one, no one thinks those things anymore. And people have really freaked out by the fact that he has millions of followers on, uh, or he did before they got taken away, have millions of followers on social media. And he had this kind of academy and all these people really, all these young men were supposedly really interested in him. Hustlers University, it's called his program. (laughs) Yeah. And it gives the game. It says I'm an alumnus of hustlers. <laughs> but the thing with all these things is, 
there's some there's an interesting discussion to be had about and we've had it before on this podcast things like in seldom and that yeah. kind of yeah. trend the and manosphere the manosphere yeah. of which and he's kind the pickup artist slash whatever this guy is yeah this sort he's kind of, of a part of swirling world of online men's rights activism a bit of this a bit of that and you can't it's not really quantifiable and it's yeah. sort of weird and no one really knows what's going on them but there's some kind of social trend happening there that's interest it's interesting in a way in which i want to understand it yeah. there's nothing positive about it but the idea that he is some kind of lord of the losers mm. and is is able to is going, kind of building a kind of social movement mm. against women is bizarre because i imagine most people are just watching it to get off on the outrage as well. And yeah, he talks quite openly exactly. about this, doesn't he? Which he is does, that yeah. if I say something crazy like X, some yeah. sort of horrendous balmy thing, then people will make videos about my video yeah, and then they'll they're respond. Gonna have a meltdown. They're gonna have a meltdown and then suddenly, you know, you go viral. He's basically just monetized outrage. Mm. And there's a lot of the internet which is like that. People watching stuff, whether it's Alex Jones, conspiracy theories, whatever, yeah. who aren't sitting there thinking, This is the God's honest truth, or I completely believe in this, but yeah. because it's outrageous and outrage goes around the internet like wildfire mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. And you think so for people to talk about this as if it's like a kind of radicalization threat. Mm. It's pretty ridiculous, but it's just, but the, the thing I have to keep reminding myself, because this is such a ridiculous individual, is the censorship bit. Yeah. The speed with which he was just deplatformed from all of the main sources of his influence. The fact it seems what you now have is like a handful of little monitoring groups, NGOs, whatever, you know, putting a call to whether, it, you know, any of these platforms and then very quickly, almost in concert, they yeah. all remove his privileges is really, really alarming. And just because of the fact that what this guy says is um, bollocks. Mm. Um, and it's, it's it's all a bit creepy. That doesn't mean that that shouldn't alarm us. And yeah. I think that's one thing that, you know, in cases like this is almost more important to point out when they're saying the kind of shit that he's been saying. Well, yeah, because, you know, free speech is always about defending the difficult cases, isn't it? We wouldn't need to defend the free speech of someone who says you should be nice to women. Uh, yeah, but, <laughs> but also, the, you know, you, you feel like a blue in the face making this point, which is that if you, someone like that who feeds off of controversy, and that's his central uh, appeal, is that he's saying things that he's obviously wants to get under people's skin, under women's skin, um, and in their knickers and whatever, is that there's, you know, if you ban them, you give them the kind of glamour that they deserve, the best well, medicine they yeah, that, they, or that they want. Yeah, that the, the, um, you know, the best treatment for any of these individuals is to ignore them, mm. is to not let it get to you. And there, there's a serious point to this, which is that there is, um, you know, in, in relation to kind of discuss, serious discussions about women's freedom, whether it be abortion rights, whether it be childcare, whether it be remaining sexism in society, you know, there, if you want to have those discussions and convince people that there is something to be said there and a fight to be won with both men and women, the narrative of saying to young men, oh, you can't hear anything like that's that's uh, oppositional to that or you yourself will become this horrendous, slightly rapey because there are accusations around Andrew Tate, um, horrible misogynist mm. is going to affect the way in which they engage in those other more serious conversations. Yeah. And especially that it's happening in schools where apparently schools are being told to kind of ask their students and monitor whether they're engaging with Andrew Tate. Yeah. The one thing you don't do with a teenager if you don't want them to look at something it's is to say, it's to tell them yeah. about it. Yeah. So just stop talking about this guy and like a cartoon figure, you know, some kind of mythical figure, he will disappear yeah. if he doesn't get the attention. He, he probably would have come and gone. And he, I mean, this yeah. is how kind of internet flavors. Who remembers Julian Blake? Nobody yeah, does. Let's talk about Emily Maitlis, who gave the 
annual McTaggart lecture at the Edinburgh TV Festival I never uh, miss this one. week. This is, yeah. it, it's it's always good because they, they always say something absurd. Yeah. So, you know, the last couple of years we had Channel 4's Dorothy Byrne saying that journalists are too nice about the government and things like that and we well, should I think call she, Boris a liar. I think she was saying that, yeah, Boris is a known liar and he's straight out of the Putin playbook, yeah, all that he, kind of stuff. he uses the media in the same way yeah. that Putin does. We had um, Armando Iannucci Armando a few years Iannucci. ago. All the Olashoga. usual suspects. We had Ola David Olashoga a couple of years ago, I think, in the year of Black Lives Matter, saying mm -hmm. the TV industry is systemically racist. So we're used to hearing, we know the lecture is going to be nonsense, whoever gives it, basically. And Emily Maitlis, her point was essentially that the BBC is biased because it's too kind to the Tory government. Um, it's scared of them. Um, it's given far too much airtime to Brexit, pro-Brexit voices, you know, given a kind of false equivalence between mm. remain, leave um, arguments. I mean, Tom, what have you made of it? So funny. I mean, like <laughs> the idea that finally someone, someone had to say that the BBC is this pro-Brexit, pro-Boris organisation as if like, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg was hosting Strictly Come Dancing and yeah. Patrick Minford <laughs> had his own chat show. It's <laughs> demented. It really, really is. But this is a kind of critique of the media mm. um, and critique of the BBC specifically, I should say, which has been curdling like on Remainer Media for a while, which is this idea that ultimately we're interested in the truth. So yeah. if you've got a debate about Brexit and you put one pro-Brexit economist against an anti-Brexit economist, that's creating false equivalence because all the clever people mm. know that Brexit is bullshit. And so therefore, what they're essentially arguing for, and I think it's quite interesting, is um, to an, any attempt at impartiality is itself a form of bias. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of weird through the looking glass way of way of um, thinking about that particular issue, and it was it was fascinating as well, just seeing how easily she sort of shifted from basically just giving vent to all the usual sort of Ramona prejudices about we live in this sort of banana republic now, mm. and um, all of our democratic norms have been shredded, and then the next minute talking about how the media needs to basically propagandise against the government. And if yeah. it's not, then it's failing in its duty. <laughs> it, the idea that any, if anyone's changed over the course of the past six years, it's not necessarily the people running politics necessarily, yeah. although Brexit has done some weird and wonderful things to our political class. It's the way in which sections of the kind of the media elite and other sections of the political class as well have responded to it. They've jettisoned mm. all their principles. They've gone a bit mad. Yeah. And this speech is probably the latest example of that, really. I'm always fascinated by this phrase, democratic norms, because you know, whenever someone raises it, you know what they're going to say after that is going to be hideously yeah. anti-democratic. You know that they're about to big up the um, judiciary, yeah. or as Emily Maitlis did, or the civil service. The ethics advisors. The ethics, yeah, these independent, you know, no, you know, unelected people who... I can't remember the exact formulation, but it was so funny. It was like, they're going off to the civil service, they're going off to the ethics advisors, and they're claiming nonsense authority like the will of the people. So it just shows you what democratic means to them. It's all the non-democratic bits of the of the setup that they like. Exactly. And, and in one of the more unguarded moments, she compared the government's... Um, you know, breaking, admitting that it will probably break international law around the Northern Ireland Protocol. She essentially compared this to murder. <laughs> she's Another spicy just, moment. She's yeah. just gone off the boil, hasn't she? It's also the case that, you know, Emily Maitlis is trying to make this point in an extremely awkward and ham-fisted kind of way about the, supposedly about the importance of impartiality, outing herself as, as so far on one side of the fence yeah. on the issue of Brexit, Such having a surprise been... surprise as well. Oh, yeah, I mean, who knew? <laughs> she never gave it away. Yeah. And, uh... But the important point was Emily Maitlis held a huge amount of political power yeah. and that is undeniable. Newsnight set the political gender 
almost every night. You know, it's the kind of thing that we know that all the spads watch it. Mm. We know that the politicians get told what happened on Newsnight. We know that it unfiltered, you know, it's a it's a very influential political program that plays into the kind of things that the that politicians then say on the Today program the next yeah, day, for yeah, example. Yeah. So that's a you know, if you're talking about problems, I mean, is that a problem that you had this kind of this individual who time and time again would have a sneery approach mm. to Brexit. I mean, I remember I was on the night of Brexit day, Brexit night with the celebrations with uh, John Barnes and Jeanette Winterson. And it was like the three of them were in kind of mourning garb and it was like a funeral. <laughs> I was trying to be jolly. And this uh, every question was about how is, you know, really, is this what you really, if you want, you want is uh, on the day that was meant to be celebrating a majority of uh, the biggest majority vote in British political history. So it's just the kind of the audacity of it is what, is what yeah. gets me because anyone who's watched, you know, the BBC impartiality debate, but it's also the like, pants off me at, at the best of times because you have both sides. It's it too is, left wing, it is, it's too right wing. It is you know, particu- all that kind of it just, stuff. In this, I suppose it is the brazenness of this particular one because yeah. it's like, oh, how is she watching the same BBC? I mean, it's worth, it. it's, exactly. I suppose it's worth pointing out just for the sake of covering it. There's, there's this specific allegation, quite McCarthy, like, there's a conservative party sleeper agent agent, <laughs> agent, agent an agent, agent of the conservative like active party, agent an said. agent of apocalypse who is um working because of the fact that robbie gibb who was like a former bbc man turned advisor to theresa may is now back in the bbc yeah. on one of these boards dealing with kind of impartiality reviews and whatnot i think a lot of people would be surprised to find out that anyone um who <laughs> isn't a sort of you know ramona works at the bbc at that high level um but also if he is exerting some sort of nefarious influence he's probably not doing a particularly good job of it, yeah. I think it's fair to say. Because, you know, whether it's Emily Maitlis, whether it's Lewis Goodall, John Soap, all of them are doing their little podcast over at Global, which this yeah. will probably serve to promote nicely. If you even just take those three, recently departed, did anyone ever look at them and think, I wonder if they voted leave? <laughs> of course you didn't. And that's yeah, a big yeah. part of the problem. You're watching The Spikes Podcast. While you're here, you should subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell so you never miss a video. But even better, to keep up with all of Spike's content, all of our brilliant articles and essays that we publish every weekday, you should sign up to our newsletter today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary. To sign up, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and click today on Spiked. That's spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and today on Spiked. Now back to the Spiked podcast. So at the weekend, the assassination of Daria Dugina, the daughter of philosopher Alexander Dugin, hit the international headlines. Alexander Dugin is an incredibly mysterious figure. He's sometimes referred to as Putin's brain or Putin's Rasputin in the press, even though there isn't really any official connection to the Kremlin. I'm delighted to discuss this with Benjamin Teitelbaum, who's the author of the brilliant book, The War for Eternity. He's also written a fantastic piece for us on Spike this week. And he's one of the few people who's actually met Alexander Dugin and so can really you know, give us an insight in, into what he's about. And before we move on to talk about the assassination itself, Benjamin, could you just tell us who is Alexander Dugin? Why is he significant? Why, um, you know, why is the assassination of his daughter an international story? Why does it matter to us? 
It's very difficult to say in briefly exactly who Alexander Dugan is. Um, he, you could call him a philosopher. You could call him a, a media personality, a publisher. Um, you could call him a networker, a, a political fixer is another term. Uh, you could call him a sort of pseudo diplomat. He has an eccentric background that includes occultism, wild drinking by Russian standards, uh, mm -hmm. sex parties, rock and roll, flirting with dressing himself up in, in Nazi uniforms and things like that. Um, and, and yet this, this very strange figure who's so many different things has found his way also not so much into the halls of the Kremlin, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, but on a, on an international stage that is sometimes very lowbrow and, and involves him speaking to and, and becoming a sort of darling of the international alt-right. Um, little boys in their parents' basements is a fine a fine opening frame for that. Um, alternately, someone who ends up being invited and gaining audiences with uh, international diplomats and in some cases international leaders. Um, so how did how did he get all that? The other thing that it would be important to mention just in an opening presentation of him is that he's an ideologue who's tried to develop a philosophical justification for Russian expansionism, something that goes beyond merely saying that, okay, the Russian state, the bureaucracy has a right to assert itself in places that it can. Instead, he says, uh, sees that Russia has a role to play in a grand history, um, a fight between liberalism and tradition, between individualism and collectivism, between uh, secularism and the sacred, and that Russia uh, was destined to fulfill the latter uh, role in all those cases. So, so yes, he he advocates Russian expansionism. He he wants to see Russia assert itself where it can, but he thinks that this has a sort of eschatological function for it, and it's that it, it's that area where. Um, where he's been compelling as a thinker as well. And how does that fit into the war in Ukraine? Because that seems to have also, you know, raised his profile um, internationally. He's probably one of the most famous cheerleaders for the war in Ukraine. But that sort of, he's given it a kind of spiritual significance, I think it's fair to say. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. He, what he sees in Ukraine is not so much the expansion of Russia, but rather the potential expansion of the West in liberalism. Um, I think it's easier to think about what he doesn't like than what he likes in the war, um, in the conflict, rather. He thinks that uh, liberalism from the West in its, in its DNA, essentially, is expansionist. It thinks that its values are universal and therefore it will never be able to hold itself within any set of boundaries in any way, shape or form, however you want to think about boundaries. And so... Um, it's constantly pushing, and now it's pushing in Ukraine. And the one thing that Russia could do to blunt liberalism is to stop it, is to assert a boundary someplace. And if you assert a boundary in one place, then it can't be universal any place. Mm. Changes its DNA in in that sense. So that's that's the sort of deeper significance he sees here. There's also the more predictable rhetoric and justifications relating to history that Ukraine is. Um, is part of the Russian cultural sphere. It's part of a Eurasian cultural community, uh, in other words, whose, whose essence, whose deep essence belongs to the East and not to the West. And what really needs to happen in his mind for, for all of those societies, is if it's the Baltics, if it's Ukraine, if it's Georgia, it's, it's not to develop in a Western model, it's to return to what they actually are and always have been, which is Eurasian, um, with a, a center being in Russia. And let's talk a bit about the um, assassination itself. Um, 
his his daughter is starting to become a, a was starting to become a figure in her own right. Is that fair to say? And certainly since her death, she's been treated as a kind of martyr of the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Is that right? Well, he's trying to do that. Mm. Um, I don't I don't know how resonant that particular version of her is that she is a martyr for uh, for Russia's for Russia's cause for Putin's cause. She she was coming into her own right. Um, there there are some indications. I've actually I never met uh, Daria, but there, there are indications that, as as you would expect, uh, with with a, a child of a famous parent, that she she was tired of living in her father's shadow and she wanted mm-hmm. to break away. But really, up to this point, what she had been is a soft, somewhat softer face, um, and spokesperson for his ideas. Mm. That's just how it how it was, and her life ended without really being able to change that dynamic. Um, she wasn't especially well known in Russia outside of specialist circles. Uh, likewise in Ukraine, but she is now, right? Mm. So when I say that she's okay, she, I don't think I don't think she's widely recognized as a martyr. She's maybe some sort of symbol. Her death could be symbolic of Russian incompetence or the threat of Ukraine, or however you want to frame it. Um, but she—that's uh, where she is right now. But but perhaps all of the all of this interpretation and narrativizing of her death that we've seen in the funeral following and press might turn her into a martyr. Um, we make martyrs after the fact; they don't make it of themselves, of course. And she was um, in Ukraine at one point, is that right? Yes, she recently traveled. I believe this was in July. Uh, she was in Mariupol in the mm. uh, in the in the Azovstal factory where the Azov fighters had had made a last stand before capitulating to the Russians. Um, and she moved around, took selfies of herself in in the factory. Um, so some of the things that she said while she was moving through there was that the place was possessed of some sort of dark satanic black magic. Um, it was an evil place. Again, there's narrativizing of this this military conflict to make it uh, a battle between good and evil, and, and that's certainly something she was participating in then as well. And we've, we've we talked a bit about how um, Dugan himself has tried to you know narrativize this uh, assassination, but what are the other kind of competing narratives around it in terms of you know who might be responsible? How is Ukraine trying to frame this? How is Russia trying to frame this? Um, what do you think about that? We, th- there've been many, uh, you know, some are in the media and some, some aren't right. I think the earliest claim of responsibility I heard was a sort of Chechen warlord dissident, um, you know, framing that this, this was framing this as punishment for, for, for Russia's actions in Chechnya. Um, and then we heard from, from Ukraine, actually a former pro-Ukrainian Russian MP, um, now resident in Kiev said that he had received a, a claim of responsibility from a domestic Russian anti-Putin terrorist organization or partisan group, however you want to call it. Um, and in their in their case, this was retribution for Putin. It was also, uh, I think, for the Ukrainian media in that case, mm. it was an opportunity to put out a narrative of instability in Putin's Russia. Okay, the war, the, the dynamic in the war seems uh, to me and some other observers to be slightly turning back toward Ukraine at this point. And and then guess what else? Uh, the, the the murder of Daria shows how weak Putin is internally. Uh, it, it adds to that to that broader narrative. That's the, of course the opposite of what we are hearing from Russia, which is that these are murderous, um, deviant, intolerable uh, Ukrainians who who mm. did this. And in that case, we have their official account that that uh, a former Azov uh, fighter came into Russia with her 
daughter with her IDs, with her license plates on her car and everything, and, and committed this act and then escaped to Estonia. Um, so, so all that narrativizing is, is, is going on this entire time. The Kremlin has put out a response to uh, the killing. I mean, clearly the fact that it has happened gives, um, gives Dugin a kind of new significance. I think it's, it's fair to say. But what do we really know about his connections to the Kremlin? We know more than what a lot of journalists have been reporting these past days, if I may speak frankly. Um, uh, so in the, in the past, some of Dugan's texts have been, have been read by a generation of military leaders. We know that some of his rhetoric, if we were to follow um, British journalist Charles Clover, that some of his rhetoric has been uh, adopted. Um, by Kremlin mouthpieces, the Kremlin uses him, amplifies him at times when it uh, is, uh, you know, facing uh, facing a conflict with the West. But beyond that, because all that you could you could hear by a more informed voice, um, we also have U.S. intelligence reports that that Dugan was sent as a sort of pseudo diplomatic emissary of of the Russian state to Turkey in particular. Um, and that, that's just one report. I think we could assume that this has happened other times since then. That was in 2004. Um, in 2015, if we are to believe the words of the former head of uh, military intelligence in Turkey, Dugan played a role in back-channeling uh, between the Kremlin and the governments of Syria and Turkey. Um, and, and what he did in that instance was, uh, was enable a potential diffusion of, of tension um, between those three states following uh, Turkey's shooting down of a Russian fighter jet um, in 2015 when, when everything was, was exploding around Assad. Um, it, it's those types of actions that we get small, small windows into. They coexist with a bunch of failures and a bunch of foolish, goofy-looking behaviors on, on, on Dugan's part. Um, but they have to be grappled with as well. This is someone who I think does not have an official position uh, but is trusted and used by the Kremlin because of his currency with with certain foreign actors. Um, that's that doesn't make him Putin's brain. That doesn't mean that he's sitting in the Kremlin and whispering things to Putin at you know at the end of these these long tables. But this this wave of commentary saying oh Dugan is irrelevant and he's always been irrelevant and now this is going to lift him up. That's not that's not true. Yeah, we've talked a, a lot about his philosophy, his significance, but, you know, you've met him a few times. What, what is he actually like as a person to, to interact with? Um, he, he's one of these people, I don't know if you've ever met one, uh, uh, Frazier, but, but they have so much energy that they just, they, they kind of overwhelm you. He's, he, his English, it's heavily accented, but it's very effective. He has, he has a large vocabulary and he can, he talks a lot. He talks a lot. He fills the room with words. Um, he speaks quickly. He seems to have an opinion on everything, and he's you know he he attracts people to him. I think for that reason, in part, uh, quite ironically, the the person that he reminds me of in that respect is Steve Bannon, former Trump. Um, and I, I wrote a book on actually their interactions with one another. Um, but that's that's how how he is. He seems like a philosopher. Um, people like to also say that he's a he's a bad philosopher in in some way, and I don't know what a good philosopher is, but um, but he's uh, he's he's an intellectual. Um, he likes to talk about ideas. Um, he's not aggressive. He's not um, disagreeable um, in person by any means. But 
he is radical. He is absolutely right. You come away from him thinking that, okay, this is a person with a more polished, um, less threatening exterior, but his ideas, I always thought, struck me as more radical than if I was sitting down talking to some young neo-Nazi or someone, you know, who, who in their outward presentation was supposed to be threatening and radical. Benjamin, thank you very much for coming on the Spike podcast. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.